millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To the eternal distress of other more reputable shows, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of independent educational podcasts providing excellent content for you, the listener. This month, we have a brand new show in the Agora Podcast Network, brought to you by Gary Giraud. We have the French History Podcast, and he recorded a plug. So here it is. Hello, this is Gary Giraud, welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present and has currently reached the reign of Charlemagne. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Thank you very much to Gary, and do go check out the show. Also, a big hello to anyone who came over from my network colleague, David Crowther's show, The History of England. Hi. Moving swiftly on. As every month, it is only right that we give honor and praise to our patrons and donors. Up this month, we have several. First up, we have Edward. Edward's services to the realm shall be honored henceforward with the title Edward of the Zirconium Boots. Thank you very much to Edward. Up next, we have Marcello, whose profound donation to the kingdom is recognized with the following title. Viscount Marcello, Commercial Loan Officer of the Southeast Quadrant. Thank you very much to Marcello. And last but certainly not least, we have Joe, whose extreme acts of loyalty and courage on the battlefield earn him the title Mittens, Supervising Hair Boiler of the Plains of Death. Thank you very much to Mittens and all of our donors and patrons. Now, I do just wish to say that I understand that we're all going through some hard times, and so I, I really appreciate the people who've uh, donated and become patrons uh, in this past nuts year, and I, I absolutely appreciate it. Hats off to all of you. To anyone who can't financially donate, there are many ways to help out regardless, most importantly telling people about the show. And if you want to donate or become a patron, go to the website, wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the support page. So there's that. Then there is tell people about the show, and that's always good. 
And then writing reviews on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use is always appreciated. And then, of course, I do like to hear from you, so get in touch. All that stuff's really appreciated. And really, thank you all so much for supporting the show this year. It's been a year, hasn't it? Anyway, on we go. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. In the city of Tel Aviv in the early 1980s. There has never been a book about the, quote, history of men in the Middle Ages, end quote. Nor is it likely that there ever will be one. But apart from the fact that far too many books about the Middle Ages make no mention of the part played by women, leaving a lacuna in the description of medieval society, is there any justification for a special study to be made of the history of women in the High and Late Middle Ages? In the extremely hierarchical medieval society, social classes differed greatly from each other in their legal rights, economic circumstances, and modes of living. Was there any condition that was shared by all women in medieval society? Nowadays, despite the remaining diversity in the status and way of life of women in the different social classes, some sociologists have defined them collectively as a minority group, although not necessarily a numerical one. Others rather more reasonably use the term marginal social group. But let us discard the terminology of modern sociologists and examine the contemporary definitions that were applied in the Middle Ages. Quote from The Fourth Estate, A History of Women in the Middle Ages by Shulamith Shahar. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 72, Women in the Middle Ages, part 5, An Estate. Podcast footnote. At the time of writing, I just looked back on my old episodes for reference as to which part of the series on women this is. Oh boy, I have an exotic relationship with Roman numerals, don't I? I might as well just write random wingdings into the title line. Apologies. End podcast footnote. In the last series of episodes, we have looked at women in the Middle Ages. This has been part of a larger project to look at non-normative populations of a society that saw itself as being composed of those who fought, those who prayed, and those who worked. We initially looked at Jews, Muslims, and lepers, and learned how space was made by the powerful for people who didn't fit in the mainstream conception of society in the context of weak states and dueling power centers. When we turned to the subject of women, we began with a question asked by Shulamith Shahar, a seminal feminist historian who argued that women constituted a fourth estate in European society. After discussing this idea and the historiography of the subject, we turned to women and sexuality, and saw how social views of sex tended to impact how individual women were viewed in the reputation-obsessed society of the time. We also looked at the economy and saw that, contrary to expectations, women played a legitimately powerful role in the economy of the time, albeit one shaped by gender roles, and for the most part targeted at benefiting the household as a collective, which was led by men. While this was the standard case, women did have the ability to work for their own benefit in certain parts of Europe and at certain times, under certain circumstances. Moving swiftly on, but with a short break to discuss source prioritization, we began twinned episodes on women and the law. 
In the first of these, we saw how women fit into criminal codes, and what those codes tell us about how society thought of women, namely as something like invalids, but that this view was falling away over time as women roles in the economy and society rose. Last episode, many of these strands came together as we discussed how the law framed a woman's ability to hold property in the context of marriage and inheritance. Due to the merger of diametrically opposed Germanic and Roman marriage customs, there is a lot of variation here. But the bullet point is that in most places in Europe, women were given at least some ability to hold and own property, at least in the form of a dowry. Given that European society in the Middle Ages was composed of decentralized governments in which public functions had been privatized in the hands of private families, this opened a scope for women, in certain circumstances, to control their economic and political destinies. At the same time, the prevalence of sword-point marriages and wider social attitudes meant that such women were a distinct minority. Today we return to the question asked in the first of these episodes. Were women a distinct fourth estate? More broadly, why study women in the Middle Ages? What does all this tell us about this society? Let me start with the main question. Did women in the Middle Ages constitute a fourth estate? Of course, someone would not write a book with that kind of title, or make a podcast series with that as the main question, if the answer they intended to present was not going to be some species of yes, they were. And so we should not be too surprised to find that, in the introduction, Dr. Shahar presents an argument in favor of the idea, at least as an important conceptual framework for modern observers looking back. Her arguments for this view can essentially be paraphrased as follows. The legal codes, church rules, and social norms of the time all paid special attention to how women should be treated as a group. In much the same way legal codes assigned different wehrgelds for the killing of a peasant versus a noble, they also assigned different costs for the killing of a man versus a woman. Women were obviously more intertwined into medieval society than other marginalized groups. Nonetheless, from the rough 1100s onwards, women are often described in documents in ways that distinguish them from normal social classes. So rather than being described as a duke or a count and a member of the nobility, a woman might be described as a very wealthy woman, or else she might be described in relation to her marital status as a widow, a housewife, or the like. Often these modes could be combined in the formulation of a wealthy widow or a poor housewife. This documentary evidence is, however, a tad late in our period. In terms of the earlier Middle Ages, which I should just quickly point out, Dr. Shahar didn't cover directly because of the lack of source material, but in terms of this earlier period, the obvious counter-argument to Shahar's thesis is that whatever would be said in later documents, legal codes of the earlier periods clearly included gender as part of a person's identity. So if you killed a peasant girl, you paid a smaller guild than if you killed a noble woman. Women were clearly divided into and within the class groupings along with the men, so how could they constitute a separate class? In other words, if you were a noble, you got treated as a noble even if you were a woman. This is less of a problem than it seems, because of the example of the clergy. Theoretically, the clergy were a separate class from the nobility or the peasantry, but we know from earlier episodes that this was not really the case in practice. On a practical level, there was at least some discrimination in monastic communities across pretty much all time periods, something we know because the practice was condemned repeatedly by observers in the early periods and then eventually written into the governing ordinances of later periods. Particularly in the case of women, the reliance of convents on dowries to operate effectively basically kept commoners out of the orders in most cases. This is all not to even begin to address the practical future of a peasant who trained as a priest versus the son of a noble family, 
which is to say the son of the noble family might be a bishop or high-ranked cleric, whereas the son of a peasant would become a village priest. Now, we do have some evidence of social mobility in the case of particularly clever people, but in general, things like the use of clerical family members to help retain some control over deeded church possessions was a practice that we find clear evidence of as early as the Celtic Church in Ireland and continues right up until the end of the early Middle Ages. Indeed, I spent some time during the episodes on Otto the Great discussing how important this practice was to Otto's rule in the German kingdom. As such, this theoretical, ideological equity and separation between the classes as communal units was, from a very early stage, complicated by the fact that the nobility was, practically, above the peasantry, and the clerics were sort of interwoven between them. By the time we stopped the narrative, in sort of the period from 1000 to 1100, the process of stratifying these classes into three separate hierarchies, as opposed to three separate sort of monolithic classes, that was well underway. And that's sort of how I've presented them in this context. You know, there were wealthy peasants and poorer peasants, and there were wealthier nobles and poorer nobles, and then there's the ch entire church hierarchy with the monastic communities in there somewhere, and they have their own hierarchy. The development of urban culture certainly complicated this picture further, but as you get into the high Middle Ages, you're really talking about people being classified not so much as by commoner versus noble with sort of a subclassification of which part of the hierarchy they fell in, which ended up meaning that they were usually classified by their job as much as anything else. This was the same period, as I mentioned before, where women would sort of be de facto classified by practical wealth rather than professional titles, so people weren't really being called countess, they were being called rich. This was different than how the men were treated, but it was in line with a much wider project of complicating the picture of social order. In the light of this picture, our intuition that classes are distinct and that this prevents women from constituting a separate class is not as strong an argument as it seems. It does look like women were being treated differently legally, were potentially being discussed as separate entities socially, and there is precedent for social classes that overlap other classes. So just as a bishop could be an upper-class cleric, simultaneously part of the nobility and also part of the clergy, a noble woman could be part of the nobility and also part of the woman, if you will. In other words, describing women as, a, in some sense, a class is not actually that implausible. That said, modern definitions of class really require sort of one more step to recognize them as a class. The people who are part of it need to sort of self-conceptualize as such and have some sort of system for perpetuating that concept. This is always the hardest thing to find when you're looking at a group of people and saying that's a class. And even in modern times, it's not always done totally coherently. In terms of the Middle Ages, in terms of women, it's much harder to show than even in modern situations, simply because we have very little material written by women from the early Middle Ages, and even less that is by women about women. In terms of our current time period, from the fall of the empire until 1100 or so, the list of authors we have that I've been able to find is basically down to three. We have Roswitha, the playwright working at the court of Adelaide, and then there's the abbess and mystic Hildegard of Bingen, and the romantic letter writer and abbess Heloise. Even in this situation, these last two are kind of pushing my dating a bit, as they wrote between 1100 and 1200. If we push further into the years between 1200 and 1300, we find many more authors. This is kind of when literacy starts to take off, but it isn't clear what their work can tell us about this earlier period, so let's lay them aside for today. 
So, if we stick to these three women, can we say anything about the self-conception of women as a class? The first thing to say is that all three women do address women as a topic. They all basically accept what we might call the mainstream position of the time, that women are in some way weaker than men physically and mentally, but also defend women as capable of valuable agency in some manner. Prosvita and Hildegard both supported a position that the weakness of women made it easier for them to act as servants of God, with Prosvita's plays mostly revolving around godly heroines outwitting male antagonists with divine assistance. Hildegard's constant line was that her visions could not possibly come from a weak and silly woman such as herself. They had to come from God, and therefore you'd better back off and let Hildegard do what she wanted, Mr. Bishop, because she spoke to a higher authority. It was a masterwork of political and rhetorical jujitsu. Heloise, as much by the example of her pointed and high-level intellectual virtuosity as by her direct arguments, argues that women are capable of rational moral judgments and are responsible for their own behavior. In short, all three deal with women in some level as a corporate group, though their feelings on their absolute value as such varies. Hildegard of Bingen is notable for the relentless degrading of women in which she engages, though again, this is somewhat transparently a part of a project of appealing to her readers and emphasizing her unique worth as an individual. The other two were somewhat more willing to defend the virtues of womanhood. So again, we might see this as evidence of a class consciousness, even if this is a consciousness imposed by combating their male interlocutors. Only Hrosvitha seems to be involved in a conscious project to celebrate womanhood as beholden of unique Christian virtues, rather than being forced to defend it. But can we really take these three women as examples of a kind of mass consciousness? After all, as well-educated noble women living in a religious orders, they represented a distinct minority of European women. I mean, there's just the three of them. First of all, while we should acknowledge that noble women in religious orders were not the rule by any means, there are good reasons to think that these three are a slender remnant of a larger body of work that may have once existed. The modern consensus is that it is plausible that these women, who were all nuns, are evidence that convents in this period may have been as intellectually active as the monasteries. Unfortunately, two things obscure this likely reality. I view it as likely. First, male contemporaries either did not value their work or never bothered to look for it. Second, as I have said many times, convents had a diminishing economic power over the course of the early Middle Ages. While well provided for in the early years, changes in church policy gradually undermined their economic foundations. This means that any materials produced by the schools in the convents probably did not survive as successfully as those in the monasteries. We do know that plenty of copying and studying happened in convents. We don't have enough evidence to say that they definitely had the same kind of intellectual firmament that the monasteries had, but that said, I think it's very likely. Unfortunately, because of the economic situation and the lack of interest from their male counterparts, the stuff that survived was just the stuff that was interesting to men. For example, Hrosvitsa's work contributed to the narratives around Otto and Adelaide, who were sort of central to the political self-conception of the European nobility going forward. Hildegard was admired by many powerful men as a mystic, and fed into a whole mystic undercurrent in religious thought. And of course, Heloise, as we said in earlier episodes, was embraced by the courtly romance literary movement. As such, many more educated noblewomen of this period probably existed than we have records of, and yet the education they received in the convents was still not available to those outside of the religious orders. 
Not to mention that most of the basis of that education was based on works by men, which is something we definitely see in Heloise's writing, because she's constantly referring to male philosophers and male theologians and all this stuff, because that's what was available. The question of how other women, not in religious orders, felt about women as a class seems to be available only via interpretation. And it's a fairly thin, high-level interpretation at that, but let me give it a try. Personally, I think that given what we see from Hosvitha, Hosvitha was composing her works for noble women, for the court of Adelaide. And we have ample evidence of powerful, educated noble women in this period, given their records as political actors. We have, you know, multiple powerful queens in Italy. There was Ermengarde in Provence, you know, multiple powerful queens in Germany. We have powerful queens in the Frankish Empire of Charlemagne. We have powerful queens in the Anglo-Saxon dynasties as well. These women would have had every reason to desire intellectual works that, if they didn't completely buck the trends of the time, at least weren't, like, down on women totally. As such, we can probably low-key assume that the attitudes of these religious women authors that we do have evidence of were somewhat shared, at least in a broad way, by a good portion of the secular noble women of the early Middle Ages, at least the powerful ones. They likely bought into the wider social image of women as weak and silly at sort of a high level, while still having the rhetorical space to punch back at these social values at some level. Even Mary was likely not solely the domain of male theorists, but which of the two you chose to emphasize was likely a matter of perspective, as it was amongst the men, I should just say. Abelard was fairly keen on Mary. As for the women working in the economy at large, fighting for their inheritances and ruling over northern Italy, they were not shy about their self-worth within the context of their own particular idiom. My hunch here is that the extant view by male intellectuals that women were non-normative in their own society would necessarily have led to the development at some level of a kind of group awareness. This seems to be the case in the sources that appeared just after our period, with women such as Christine de Pizan writing very coherent defenses of women as women, and some evidence of women educating other women into subcultural norms via separate educational processes, centered around things like group textile production and the like, at least amongst the nobility and the better-off uh, urban upper classes. But was this a class consciousness? Would women take the side of women as representatives of their in-group, regardless of other social or economic or political considerations? To put this another way, if a priest or monk was accused of a crime, all the other members of the clergy would defend them against all comers until that individual could be tried in a church court. If they were found guilty, they might be turned over to the secular authorities, but the clergy protected their own. This kind of relationship was more complicated in terms of the nobility and the commoners, but it's clear that there was a kind of communal solidarity in these groups. The commoners, of course, would band together to negotiate with the nobility. Nobles would never be subject to judgment by commoners without a noble presiding over the final decision. So, would women rally around to protect other women in the same way? Well, we have some examples, but to summarize a lot of reading, not really. Sticking to the three sources that I've already introduced today, Hildegard did put strenuous effort into defending her nuns from interference by male authorities, but this was arguably as much about defending her own power as anything else. 
She seems to have run a very tight ship in her abbey that many women resented, and much of her defense against interference was just about making them take their medicine, as it were. More broadly, we have plenty of evidence of women working for and against other women as suited their interests. For example, Berengar the Nudnik's wife is described as taking part in the assaults on St. Adelaide, though that comes to us from Liutprand and as such may be not true. Still, we also have the example of how said St. Adelaide treated her daughter-in-law Theodora. We haven't really covered this in much depth yet, I'm not sure if we are going to, but unfortunately Theodora is described in the sources as having a very hard time of it, and did not mourn over much when her predecessor passed. The primary loyalty in general seems to have been to immediate family members, alliance networks, etc., which of course is what we would expect from a normal human. While women may have been aware that the social infrastructure of their time seemed to serve the interests of men before they served women, we do not see this observation galvanizing all that much group consciousness in terms of day-to-day -day affairs. So, where does this leave us on our initial question? Were the women a kind of fourth estate? Well, in a very classic me answer, yes and no. From the point of view of the male social theorists of the Middle Ages, there were only three estates, and there were women. It would probably be right to characterize the views of the time by saying something like, the people who occupied the three estates were men, who acted as representatives of collective social units that sometimes contained women. Women sometimes had an ability to attain personal roles in all of the estates, but mostly they were treated as isolated parts of larger social units, usually the family or the extended family or something like that. For the most part, women as individuals seem to have lacked a fully developed sense of class consciousness, and seemed to have just sort of accepted the situation as it was. On the other hand, in contexts where they were allowed to coalesce into groups, like convents or monarchical courts, they may have come intellectually to see womanhood as part of their identity, and were able to articulate a kind of position within male-dominated mental worlds. In some cases, they could claim a kind of superiority, especially when the men in a situation were idiots. But that feeling does not seem to extend outside these isolated female spaces to any kind of loyalty to other women as women, merely to women as a concept of womanhood, or as comrades in court, or as dependents in a monastic community. On the other hand, and this is a bit unpopular to say these days, but we do not have to entirely accept the views of the time as gospel truth. We certainly can't lose sight of how the people at the time thought of their situation. It's a vital piece of data. But it's not everything. In the same way that we use modern sociological concepts like socioeconomic class to try and describe to ourselves what is happening independently of how people in a situation feel, so pretty much every American will tell you that they're middle class, but that can't be true. So we use these independent variables to analyze where people actually fall in a sort of pyramidal class structure. So in much the same way that we sort of get around people's own views in modern times, modern intellectual tools can help us frame an understanding of the underlying structures of a society, even if the people of the time didn't have the language or self-awareness to describe it as such. From that point of view, the reality is that the evidence we see in law and society saw women as distinct and non-normative, and that there was something that connected them together, being women. Women could not have survived without understanding that men saw them differently because of this aspect of their identity, and it's likely that they educated young women in how to navigate and even to take advantage of the system. 
At the same time, they were recognized at some level as being an integral part of their society, and not a group of resident aliens, like Jews or lepers, who were just excluded from the class system as such. So, with a bit of a hedge here and there, where we must acknowledge that this is an anachronistic description, and is more for our benefit than theirs, yes, I think that we can say that women represented a kind of fourth estate. It's at least a useful description in helping us sort of understand the way people were treated in the society. This brings us to the other two questions I started off with. Why spend so much time on these non-normative groups rather than getting on to Wittenberg already? Has this taught us anything? Well, let's deal with the second part first. In terms of genuinely new information, I do think there was a lot here, specifically in terms of the way that specific aspects of medieval society worked that I, I really didn't get to earlier. To take an example from last episode, we learned about elder care, or widow beekeepers, the institution of marriage. Sexual assault was kind of an important thing that I covered two episodes back, but theories about sex, the way households functioned economically, even the place of prostitutes in a otherwise very religious society. All these things are things that definitely deepen and broaden our understanding of the era that I just didn't get to before. I think there's also a pedagogical point to be made. No matter how much I said that conditions varied on an individual level based on geography, time period, and family situation, I think the last bunch of episodes have really helped bring that point home at a visceral level. I think the last bunch of episodes really helped show that European society was not just composed of three monolithic groups, while still helping to preserve our understanding that these structures did matter on a practical level. Far from being monolithic, though, we learned about women entrepreneurs, legally protected prostitutes, women with worthless husbands who got courts to let them repossess their dowries, and Jewish merchant women living in sin with their kept goy boy toy. It's hard to see all commoners as Pythonesque mud farmers at this point. We have also learned a bit more about the granularity of the European political structure. The way political power was so privatized that even women could rule over men, despite the church's protest. How the legal system related to real-world cases, and even how much we can learn from law codes. I talked about much of this in earlier episodes, but I think, or I hope, this process explained better how this was actually real in a way that was much more effective than just me saying European politics was very complicated and based on personal relationships. Things in society being based on personal relationships is something every vapid-used car salesman says. It's a little different when you're talking about your boss at work potentially arranging your daughter's marriage after you have an unfortunate riding accident. To some extent, all this pedagogical advantage could have been gained by just spending an extra year talking about different social classes. But at a certain point, that kind of depth would likely have seemed unimportant, self-indulgent, and tedious without some sort of topical purpose behind the conversation. There is a broader epistemological debate here that underlies a lot of Western thought, and if you will indulge me, I think it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about it. The ancient Greek philosophers, in their millennia of followers, argued that the basis of knowledge came from examining what we would call normative examples, and then relying on introspection to tell us about reality. This was a view not shared by Thucydides, who mocked the armchair philosophers in more than one occasion in his histories, and Plato and Aristotle definitely disagreed about the value of what we would call empirical observation. But the general argument was that examining individual phenomenon risked getting bogged down in unimportant details. The rise of science in modern culture was based on ignoring this attitude in one way or another. 
We will, in all likelihood, talk about the scientific revolution at some point, but suffice it to say here that Tycho Brahe, Kepler, and Copernicus made the advances they did in part because they didn't just focus on center mass of the evidence and the theories that they had in hand, but instead on the little weird details around the edge of their observations that seemed to call into question the normative case and the model of reality that seemed to hold it all together. In medical research in particular, our progress in the last several centuries was often very specifically based around an analysis of specific situations. I think I've mentioned this before, but the most famous example is the way broad classifications like hysteria have been examined and found to contain multiple different conditions. As each separate condition under that old umbrella was identified due to its specific phenomenology and treated, ultimately the diagnosis of hysteria ceased to be. Incidentally, some of our first discussions of hysteria as a concept come from the ancient Greek philosophers. And just as a final note, Darwin would have made no progress whatsoever if he just said, oh, they're all finches, rather than studying the different variations in color and beak shape on the different Galapagos Islands. I'm not making an argument for scientific history here, or history as a science, but rather the practice of examining particulars and building a theoretical framework from that, and how that's of central epistemological importance to modern thought. This practice of what we might call phenomenology is a complex one that requires us to continually go back and forth in our examinations as we sift through different frameworks of analysis and try and pick out what pieces of evidence are important and how. But it seems to me that it's vital in helping to build a somewhat realistic picture of reality. From a pedagogical standpoint, as I've already indicated, it helps you justify, to some extent, a more detailed examination of the evidence that's in front of you that might be justified if you simply worked from normative cases. But there is a bigger issue underlying this, something I still think many in the humanities miss even while arguing for this sort of vaguely in practice. This is the issue of aggregation bias. Let me give you an example of aggregation bias in my day job and how it can be a problem. If you analyze an area and find that 95% of the people in the area are willing to drive 30 minutes to get to a doctor, and you have a doctor's office with the proper capacity within 30 minutes of everyone in your city, you might think you are all set. 5% of the population may not be accounted for, but they're probably spread evenly across the city, and we can use other methods within the various communities of the city to find this handful of people and reach them with other resources. But then, months later, you get told that a lot of people just don't have access to healthcare. How could that be? Well, it turns out that the 5% is not spread evenly across the entire area, but they are concentrated in a neighborhood that's very close to a doctor's office, but the majority of the residents don't drive, and the doctor's office is on the wrong side of a highway from that neighborhood. Rather than a situation where a few people need to be helped out by their community, you actually have a community that's been systematically denied services due to a mistake in the analysis. Oops. Now, this is a history podcast, and we are not providing vital goods and services to the population. And I should say, for the most part, we're not using statistics and math to reach our conclusions. But this example should give you some idea of some of the dangers involved. We are trying to understand how a society works. Anytime you subsume specifics into a normative mass, you risk ignoring extremely important processes that may be at work if you subsume them too much. You don't ever want to get bogged down in too many details, of course, and we don't have evidence for every individual to ever live. So some way is needed to balance these epistemological and pedagogical needs. In statistical research, the answer to this is a quest for ever more granular data. In my day job, we move from states to towns and cities to census tracts and so on. 
In history, the process that has been developed is to move through different frames of reference. From what we might call the mass-scale normative political story, we move to the perspective of the classes, to minority groups, to women, to specific regions, and so on until you have built up a picture that's detailed enough to explain what it is you are trying to explain. There is a tendency amongst many people, both consumers and to some extent producers of history, to think that you need to pick a framework that you think is right and stick with it. I am a Marxist historian. Or I am a feminist historian. Or I am a historian of 13th century mill architecture. But I think that this kind of rigid ideology is a mistake, at least when you're trying to put everything back together. Usually, combining frameworks doesn't actually invalidate any of the other frameworks. It just looks at the data from different angles, pulling out subsets of information and highlighting different things than you might have otherwise. Like, for example, how the Guild Regulations of London that I've read 90 times were referenced in every single source book I've read in the past three years. But each source book emphasized different aspects of the text. One looked at how they influenced class relations. Two of them talked about how they impacted women. And another talked about public health regulations. Another great example of this are the plays of Roswitha, which I did actually use, if you'll remember, as a source in the discussion of Otto and Adelaide, but which took on an entirely different purpose for today's episode. In other cases, texts that might have seemed unimportant, like Heloise's letters, take on a special significance that requires their inclusion when you're looking at a study of women rather than political stories as a whole. Whether we're talking about new data, like Heloise's letters, or new interpretations, like Roswitha, Shifting between frameworks can help you find out new things about a subject. Ultimately, of course, we do need to pull back to the bigger picture, if only to help ourselves make sense of things in our brains. This is something I try and do at the end of every episode, and which I'm about to do now. What this examination of women and the other non-normative groups has done is take you on such a tour of different perspectives from which medieval society can be viewed. Far from being a monolithic dystopian mud farm, the feudal society was one of mutual obligations that tied individuals into families, families into clans and villages, villages into manors, manors into regional blocks, and regional blocks into kingdoms. The people most politically central to this system were powerful nobles who held important aspects of state power as private possessions, a fact which allowed women in these clans to exert political and economic influence. The kings sought ways to counter this private power and often used marginalized groups to do this. The scholars in the networked monastic institutions of the time spread ideas across the continent using the correspondence networks and intellectual apparatuses initially built by the church hierarchy. By the time of Otto, the hierarchy was extended over an area that it could not possibly govern, and existed as much from a point of view of harmless tradition as from intrinsic loyalty. But the monks and nuns of the communities were building an educational framework that had started to send committed and educated people into key positions in the political and ecclesiastical hierarchies of Europe that would bring things back together again. In the process, their influence helped bring new ideas about social organization into the frontier areas of Europe, helped to stabilize the economy and rebuild connections between regions. Their ideology was in some ways hostile to women and tolerant, in the strictest possible sense of the word, to minorities. Still, it made space for both in ways that attempted to accommodate or rationalize existing conditions. The status of women in the church declined over the course of the early Middle Ages due to the economic ramifications of several theological decisions made by men, but the decisions of the church also helped protect women's right to property, discourage sword-point marriages over time, and control the brutality of men and families within the limits of the political time and place that they were in. The legal system did not work as we think of it today. 
It was a popularity and wealth contest in many ways. While the church called for the protection of the innocent, social views on women and the poor meant that they probably had worse outcomes overall. However, it also meant that the legal system would not cause a civil war through attempts to overly rigidly punish people with private armies or social power. Bribes were part of the system, and many crimes existed simply as a way to shake down people who might have money. On the other hand, if you were rich enough, you could slip the bonds of a backwards age and live as you liked. Wealthy women in cities had all the social restraints of noble women, as their men imitated the social mores of the nobility, but shared little in their ability to set themselves up as matrons of private kingdoms. All the same, this was an era of economic growth in Europe, and many urban families saw an improvement in their material circumstances and power. Women in the artisan class could do business for themselves, and be something like equal partners in their households. Well-off peasants lived somewhere between the two ends of the spectrum, as well-off women were expected to attend social mores, but in reality they shared in the management of a farm that made plenty of work for everybody. The poor in the cities and the countryside alike were often desperate and on the edge of starvation. Piecework may have helped bring in money, but most worked as servants in some capacity or another, and this could expose women to sexual assault and men to physical abuse. On the other hand, no one cared if they got married to whomever they wanted, and in whatever way they wanted. Women and men shared most equally in the struggles of a life of toil. We will learn more about that life of toil in two episodes, when I begin another look at slavery and unfreedom in the Middle Ages. This will further expand our understanding of medieval society, while also setting us up nicely for a topic that will have some relevance in the early modern period. But next time out, I'm going to share another episode in the sort of Living the Life series, in which we learn a bit about modern people living in different religions. This will, not incidentally, give me some time to catch up on reading. But to hear all of that, you'll need to tune in for the next episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Is that true? Did I actually say that? deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.